My name is Jeremy Collins. I'm a pastor who has honest conversations with other pastors to take a deeper look at matters of worship and faith, all while exploring who God is and how he works in our lives. Make sure you stick around to the end where we're going to answer your questions. This is Pastor Talk Radio. Hello, hello. Welcome to the next episode of Pastor Talk Radio. Today we are talking about gospel-centered worship. And I will not be alone today. I am joined by Matthew Montgomery and Paul Becker. Welcome, fellas. How are you doing today? Fine, thanks. Good. Good I'm to glad be. Glad that you're here. Glad that you're here. For for context, all of us had the chance of working together for a time. Paul and I are still currently working together at the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown. Uh, so, Matt, who are you? What do you do? What are you up to right now? Tell the people why why we should listen to you when talking about worship. You shouldn't. You should listen to the pastors that are in this conversation Ooh. right now. But I am the former music minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown. My wife and I moved here to Nashville, Tennessee. It'll be two years on April 1st. So just coming up on that two-year mark, which is exciting. But... Awesome. Awesome. We're glad to have you. It's it's good to be back together, even though maybe not in person. We'd love to be yeah. in person. Um, so he, he's, yeah. a, he's a newly married man. It's evidenced by the fact that he dropped a date. When you're newly married, you have to remember dates. November 1st, huh? Got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're past the 10-year mark. Now I just have to remember years. That's right. Decade. So. There's a point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So who are you, Paul? Paul Becker. I've been a pastor for 36 years, and I came to Bakerstown in 2016. And um, been serving here as a senior pastor and have privilege to, to work alongside you, Jeremy. Um, we've had a longstanding friendship and history as uh, I served this congregation once before as an interim senior pastor about 16 years ago. So uh, to church in my neighborhood, people that I know, people that I love, and colleagues that I've come to know and love as well, and still hold that out to, to Matt Montgomery as well. Yeah, and so our our story began together, Paul, back in 2006 when I started at the church, and you were the senior pastor there. So mm -hmm. that gives some perspective. I've been able to be at Bakerstown that whole time. You've come and gone. And what we're going to share today is some of our story of the evolution or the change of worship liturgy at Bakerstown, some of the why. But before we get to that, well, and and we're going to share some stories that Matt, even though he was here for, doesn't even know. These stories haven't hit the light of day. So make sure you stick around for that. The, that will be coming up a little bit later in the program. But as we begin today, shock you. yeah, I don't want to I don't want to oversell, but I think it's. I think those stories will help give a context to the struggle that this can be for pastors and churches as they're trying to think through what is biblical, what is right, what is best for our context, because sometimes those conversations of worship are hard to have. And that's what we want to do here on Pastor Talk Radio is have conversations that may not be able to be had in other places and other times because Sunday is always coming and you don't necessarily have time to make changes. You just got to keep rolling. So we're going to hop into our first question. And the question I want us to kick off today is, why should the gospel be at the center of worship? 
give us a defense and a reason why that should be the case. That sounds kind of obvious, but it isn't always the case. So why should we have it at the center? Well, I'll, I'll start with the problem that we all had have, and that is um, sin. And we come before a holy God, and there is this matter of sin. And that's bad news. And the good news is, is that God makes provision for the gap that is between him and ourselves. And that provision is through the atoning work of Christ at the cross. And so our faith in his atoning work uh, accomplishes our reconciliation with the Holy God. And um, this this puts us into a, a posture of being a child of God that hears our Heavenly Father, and we are instructed, guided, and uh, we are assisted by his Holy Spirit. And um, uh, Christ promises to be with us as we as we worship and wor- worship is uh, it's more than an event that's scheduled on a calendar at a place uh, for a particular congregation. Worship is uh, bigger than us. It, it involves all of heaven while we worship here on earth and it involves our entire life as offered as worship, as being in relationship with the Holy God accomplished through Christ empowered by the Holy spirit. Amen. What would you say, Matt? Not saying you have to add to what Paul said, but what would be your your thought? Just sort of dovetailing with that a little bit. I think that in Reformed circles, we often ask ourselves, like, who is worship for? And the the resounding answer is always for God's people in Reformed circles. And it's, is it for the believer or the unbeliever? But really, if we shape our services to have that gospel narrative be the, the central focus every week, week in and week out, then it becomes for the believer and the unbeliever that would show up and hear the gospel no matter what. Even if, God forbid, the pastor misses it in the sermon, they're still going to hopefully see Christ's work on our behalf mm-hmm. in what we sing and what we pray and what we confess and all of these different elements coming together that rehearse the gospel narrative week in and week out. And absolutely, and all the um, items that you mentioned, all the movements of worship that you mentioned, Matt, go in an order. And uh, so the whole story of the gospel is told in 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 worship. And so uh, it's a great priv- privilege to live and speak the gospel. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I think both those are really helpful to think about. And, and Matt, I think you're right. The, the question of who is a really important one because too often times we make us the subject and the object of worship. And I think that as we ask ourselves, what's the point? Why do we do this? I think we fall into the trap of thinking our worship needs to be a certain way to be evangelistic. When in reality, the only thing we need to be evangelistic is the gospel. That's the power of God unto salvation, as Paul says in Romans. And so as we think about what should our worship do or what should our worship elicit, and this isn't just singing. We've said that before. This is the totality of what happens when the people of God gather. I think it has to in some way 
be about the core. And if it's not, then it becomes about these other things, maybe unintentionally so, but all of a sudden it becomes about all these other things. Doing the work or the life of the church can sometimes not be gospel centered. Right. So, uh, well, let us know down in the comments below. What do you think? I, I think it's a pretty obvious question to think about, but then you get to the question of what does this practically look like? It's one thing mm -hmm. to say, oh, the gospel is the center. Um, I've heard many preachers and teachers give a solid gospel presentation in their preaching, but then the rest of their exposition and the rest of everything is man-centered. So you can even get the words right and some of the ideas right and miss the mark in terms of application and follow through. And we're not going to have a conversation to condemn anything that had been done previously. That's not our hope. But our hope was to think, hey, we really went on this journey together over time and it brought us to questioning or at least asking the question, uh, the why behind everything in worship. What happens, what do you think happens when we start asking that why question of everything in worship? What's the end result of that? When we start questioning, why do we do this? Why do we do that? How, why, is, why could that be a helpful practice for worship leaders, for pastors, for teachers? I'll say, I'll say from a preaching and worship planning perspective, um, when, when I'm working on a text for preaching uh, and even thinking through uh, not only the exegesis, but the uh, uh, the application as well. Everything from exegesis to application. Um, what happens is my my mind and heart are set on a longer journey into Scripture, perhaps more of Scripture than the text that's under consideration for preaching. And um, so, for example... There may be something in the text that points to an attribute of God that is that is worth um, speaking by name and being brought into scriptures at the beginning of the worship service or in songs in the worship service um, as a form of approaching a holy God and joining in the the worship and adoration of all of heaven. And then um, I'll just say then the prayer of confession, right? Um, the prayer of confession can also, is also informed by the, the sermon of the day. And there may be things in the text that we must confess and turn from and repent and things that we must turn to in the imitation of Christ. And so that prayer of confession uh, has those elements of, of identifying, like, like our looking in the mirror of Scripture mm. and seeing our sin, and then also claiming what we see in Christ and following after him as a disciple. And so I'll just leave it there. Yeah, well, and, and I think you, we've done that very interesting ways the last few weeks at Bakerstown. If, if any of you had listened to the first episode, I walked through our liturgy of that week and everything had to do with children. And it was reminding us of being children of God. The scriptures that were chosen, the prayer of confession, was reminding us of our childlike faith. And why was that? Because the text of that day 
was going through the sermon of Jesus talking about bringing the little children to him. And so mm-hmm. um, it can help also with memory, but it also helps focus the heart. We're so distracted. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's a great, great answer as to why. And I've seen that play out in our context. Matt, what do you think? Why are some of the, what can be the benefit of asking, why do we do this thing in worship? Hopefully it boils down what we do and the things that aren't commanded in scripture, we can do away with because it's so easy to step into a church context, I imagine as a pastor and as a musician, as anyone serving in the church and come up against the, well, we've always done it this way. And so how do you evaluate? You need to hold these things up to scripture and see what's actually worth doing, what is actually forming and shaping our people, and what is just kind of this rote thing that we've always done. Our pastor here at Covenant Prez always says that tradition is the living faith. Uh, Let me just, I have it written down because I know I'm going to mess it up. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Hmm. So there's things that we can get into a rut of doing that just are things that we've always done. Um, Or there's these things that are worthwhile doing that have shaped generations of Christians and believers before us and that will continue to shape and form us that are worth doing. And those are things that are explicitly, explicitly commanded to do in scripture. Yeah. And and I I think what I also have found out similar to what you just said is we can end up finding that some of the things we've been just doing actually are commanded in scripture. So we might even find out that even though we didn't know the why there was a clear why behind what we were doing and what that gives us a chance to do is to move into worship as teaching that I think is really essential because we have young years, young hearts, sometimes baby Christians or or non-Christians in worship And worship is a chance, not just in the sermon, but all of worship is a chance to teach. And if we can help people understand the why we confess sin, the why we pray, the why we sing, helping people understand the why makes it feel less traditionalism Mm. and and more, oh, there's a reason, There's there's a tether to ancient things that speak to truth. And to that point, I'm embarrassed to say how late in life I've learned why we sing in church, even pursuing vocational church music ministry. And you guys heard me harp on the verse that I heard you quote in last week's Pastor Talk Radio, Colossians 3.16. I quoted that way too many times to the choir at Bakerstown, to the congregation before we sang stuff. But really, that was me preaching that to myself because I had for so long just thought singing is just part of what we do in church. I never thought, why do we do this? And it wasn't until delving into those verses and the instructions in the New Testament that I realized that it's not just this moment that's personal between me and God. It's really us addressing one another corporately and mm. teaching and admonishing one another. Mm-hmm. Well, that, mm-hmm. that's a great segue to our next point. So thanks, Matt, for doing that, because we're going to jump into some of how we got here at Bakerstown. And I want, Paul, I want you to share a little bit about what it was like to bring Matt on board and how did that shape and change some of how you approached understanding worship? Okay. So, um, first I want to say 
address the senior pastors uh, here <clears throat> and to say that, um, you know, I've had three decades plus of experience in a local church. And um, I know that when I entered my very first church, uh, I was overwhelmed. And uh, the whole prospect of, of preaching every week was a, a new, new discipline. And I was uncertain about that, anxious and, and looking forward to it, but uncertain about it. And the amount of time I spent in uh, sermon preparation early in my ministry, um, uh, that's where my primary focus was. And I, and I entered the local situation with an organist who was also the choir director and the organist and choir director uh, at, at the organist basically picked the, the hymns, the three hymns for the service and picked the choral anthems. And all I did was bring to the table the scripture readings and the uh, the preaching, mm -hmm. and I would also bring to the table the call to worship, and any prayer of confession, because that was a particular congregation that that used prayers of confession in worship. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as a, as a soul pastor, um, I was overwhelmed with trying to fit into the worship culture of that local congregation, mm -hmm. and. Um, and I hit the ground running and soon shifted into I'm fresh out of seminary mode. Mm. So I had some reforms to make. And all I did was change out the liturgy, enhance it uh, perhaps, uh, to what I learned in seminary. And honestly, in seminary, um, I did not have any worship theology uh, coursework. All of the worship preparation mm. was primarily practical, you know, how to do, how to lead communion, how to do a baptism, um, how to read well. Um, and the order of worship was basically prescribed by the denomination that I was in. And it was even found in the front part of the hymn book. So essentially all I did was, uh, bring that local congregation into its denominational worship identity through a liturgy. And uh, I understood, you know, it, it was basically a three-part um, worship service where you begin with adoration, then you confess your sin, and then, uh, then you hear the word of the Lord read and preached, and then you respond to that word, um, you know, with prayers for the world, uh, perhaps the sacraments. And uh, I just knew the order and it followed, like, say, a pattern for prayer. Mm. That, nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, it was a good place to start. So as a senior pastor and then having moved to other congregations, you, you, you feel this pressure to conform to the local church's culture across the board. And that includes worship. And every congregation has its own hymnody. And, um, you know, you, you just learn hymnody from one church, you go to another and you have to learn a whole new hymnody, uh, because the very first time you put out a hymn that you think everybody would know, and they don't, you hear about it. And so, um, you quickly understand that worship is often formed around, uh, longstanding patterns 
and long-standing patterns that establish a matter of taste uh, because those who remain like what has been offered and if and if you know a person doesn't like what is being offered well quite often they will go to another church so to look for um spiritual goods and services that are that maybe appeal to their tastes so you know you don't care for an organ you go to hear a band um and so uh, worship i did not know this at the time for many most of my my time uh was normative mm -hmm. local normative worship what fit the local norm is what was protected oftentimes and uh um, and so when I came to Bakerstown in 2016, um, there were some vacancies in the music ministry department and we had an interim person for a good while, Claudia Brown. And, uh, and then after Claudia went to go to a teaching position at a university, um, the, the position was vacant and Matt applied. And so uh, we had our, our interview. And this is when I became aware that um, I needed to do my own work in worship theology. I have been pretty much, yes, I was pretty much, pretty much, you know, practical, you know, conforming to the local norms, but not yet standing back at, and looking at what I had been doing as an object to examine and critique according to scripture or our reformed tradition. And so, um, and I became aware of this in my interview with Matt when uh, we talked about his uh, worship theology. In fact, he had prepared um, a video where he talked about his worship theology and uh, I'm still in possession of that video. And then, and then Matt asked me directly, um, does Bakerstown prescribe to um, normative worship or regulative principle of worship? Normative principle or regulative principle? And Matt, when you said that question, I honestly did not know what you were talking about. I probably didn't know what I was talking about either. Well, you, you were coming at it, you know, probably from your uh, hearing it at Geneva College, um, perhaps. But those aren't terms that I heard in my previous denominational context, nor in my, my denominational founded seminary training. And nor did I have any reading about worship. I was just like in the saddle and, you know, reins in my hand, just trying to do what the local church had always done. And all I had to bring to the table were my elements of worship. And honestly, I always felt like there was something missing, but didn't know exactly what that was. Hmm. And so, um, you know, being a pastor, a senior pastor in particular, there are so many other things that, that come into your scope of, of uh, uh, awareness and scope of work and either for you to do or for you to um, 
you know, dispense to, to other people to take care of, that uh, gaining time just to think about worship um, is, is in short supply. And here's the other thing. Honestly, this is me. Perhaps it's just me. But, you know, when you begin to examine worship and you see some deficits in what is in place um, and you start to gain an appreciation for the reforms that may be needed, there is a, a matter of fear when it comes to making changes, you know, um, because sometimes there is just pushback from church leaders or pushback from congregants. And, uh, you know, so anyways, um, so anyway, I, when I come to regulative and, and normative principles of worship, uh, that's when I began to do my, my work. And, um, so let's give a, let's give a definition. What, what, what are normative and regulative principles of worship? Matt already touched on regulative in a comment he made earlier about scripture. He did. So, so he, he can he, define he, it. He can lead with that, Matt. <laughs> so regulative being God clearly prescribes what we're to do in worship and anything that is not explicitly commanded is left up to the normative principle. If it's not touched upon, then we're free to do it in that case. Yeah. So, so there's, there's liberty, there's freedom, yes. but what is expressly commanded in scripture we can't ignore. And exactly. I've found that there is a spectrum of the regulative principle because mm-hmm. some people would claim to adhere to it in a very different way than I personally would. And that's why we mm. end up with exclusive psalmody people. That's why mm. we end up with a whole host of other things. So there's definitely some wiggle room and some liberty within both of those, but that's the overarching layman's yeah. definition. Yeah. Good. So it, and I, I want some of you to, to think about what you've just heard when you hear a pastor of three decades saying, hey, I hadn't really thought of it this way. And, and it's not that this isn't something talked about, but I think sometimes we fall prey to the tyranny of the urgent. And these are things that may just not make the calendar to really look into as pastors when you've got a sermon and you've got care to go visit people and funerals and weddings and and church meetings. And you're like, wait, I'm supposed to analyze everything in worship and see if it fits scriptural standards. Like, when do I have time to do that? Let alone now the fear of change and the challenges that can come. But I think mm-hmm. a way to begin this is to start. <clears throat> and this is why I asked this earlier. I think a question to begin moving people down this road if you start to look at your church's worship and you're concerned, get to people asking the why. Because I think that even in asking the why question, you'll either find it has no purpose or meaning other than we've always done it, or you're going to find a purpose or meaning that you might be able to ground in scripture, which is a good thing. And then you get to talk about that. So I think that could be Uh not a covert way, but a beginning step. I know for us, it was reading Brian Chappell's Christ-Centered Worship that really helped our leadership focus in on this um, and, and, and think about, wow, worship has looked so different <laughs> over the centuries. What is it that holds scripture that holds it all together? 
I think is very interesting. Yes, and I, I what you mentioned there, Jeremy, about um, leadership. Um, in our polity, in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, um, the responsibility for worship does land, you know, in the teaching elders' lap. And um, there's a lot of oversight that a teaching elder has in worship. And I appreciate that principle. I think it's an extension of teaching. Um, and so we began uh, making some reforms in worship. Uh, and part of that was accelerated by COVID when we were not meeting in person, but mm -hmm. were pre-recording um, you know, worship guidance on YouTube before we live streamed. And so as uh, you two young guys were engaging me, an old guy, in, mm -hmm. in reflecting on worship theology, um, you, I began anyway starting to think, well, how, what does this actually look like? And how do you get there as a worship planner? You know, so um, I, I, I followed Matt's example when it came to uh, song selections. He was our, our uh, music minister at the time, and I quickly learned that I could trust his, his sense of, of uh, music leadership and music selection. Hmm. And perhaps, Matt, you could speak to, you know, just that part of, bringing something to the table for, for worship planning, you know, kinds of songs to sing. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm flattered to hear that you trusted me that quickly with that stuff because I probably shouldn't have been, but I always deferred to you two as pastors. Well, I always let you make one mistake and then we just didn't sing that song again. Yeah. Which one was that? Yeah. Uh, do, I have to, do I have to say it? <clears throat> oh, I just named it. But that was Some before. reckless thing. That, that's a whole other rabbit trail. But <laughs> Actually, if you want to know about that, go back to a previous live stream where we talked about worship and we did talk about reckless love. Matt was on that live stream on my channel. I'll link it in the description down Perfect. below. Okay. You can only do that once. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I owe a great debt to a few guys that I learned from for song selection stuff, one of which was fresh just before I took the position at Bakerstown. I had been worshiping at a church just one town over from here in Nashville, Cornerstone PCA in Franklin, Tennessee. And their chief musician is his title. Greg Wilbur is also their liturgist. So he sits down with the pastors and talks through the text and comes up with songs and prayers and historic creeds and confessions that line up and serve the the whole the gospel theme primarily of the message that week and then also just the specific text that they're going through and that was my first experience actually clearly seeing in a bulletin or a worship guide as we call it at Bakerstown um, seeing why we do what we do in worship because they would have little footnotes on the side that would say prayer of confession, 
this is why we go before God. We don't go before God to earn our merit, but we go before to acknowledge that we are already in Christ. Stuff like that. Stuff that just mm-hmm. very clearly and practically laid out why we do everything that we do in worship. And coming out of that season, worshiping with that church and saving every bulletin that they um, distributed each week. I, I remember bringing a couple of those bulletins to our worship planning meetings at Bakerstown for suggestions and seeing how Greg picked the songs that, uh, again, just supported what was happening in the service. If there was a written out prayer and then some form of confession in the form of a song, we would do that um, Lord have mercy for what we have done song a bunch at Bakerstown because of that it served to sort of undergird the confession and the assurance of pardon all in the form of a song or using instead of a creed instead of reciting the apostles creed singing in Christ alone which in itself is sort of a creed stuff like that um having wrestled with the exclusive psalmody bit at Bakerstown I saw the merit in singing scripture so you guys were nice enough to let me use some of the hymn slots as sort of guinea pig training ground uh, with some of these psalm settings that I started to incorporate. So a bunch of stuff that I can't take any credit for. You guys were gentle in your leadership and let me make the mistakes that I needed to make and also were open to suggestions. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Glad to have you there. I, I do think that was, I do think that was providential. Um, Amen. Our work, our working together was certainly under, you know, everything's under the sovereignty of God. Let's not debate that. It, but it, it's, it's a blessing when you can say, yes, it was mm-hmm. under the sovereignty of God and, and as, as a gift. And so, um, um, I, I, I observed you, Matt, and, um, and along with that comes a learning about vocal and instrumental um support for songs and how that can happen um so i appreciate your contributions to our life here at bakerstown church yeah it's it's been a a journey i think one of the things that i've taken away most from the time and the thoughts as we've thought about how worship has evolved it's understanding the the congregation is the choir that mm. the congregation is the uh, it, it's not a, a performance that they observe or a concert they attend but it's all intended to engage them the sermon is intended to engage them it's not just meant to be a, a place where uh, a pastor can get get up and and feel good that he did a good job but instead it's about engaging hearts and minds and voices. And I shared this in the, uh, the why Jesus network chat that went live recently. You can check that out again, links in the description for that too. But one of the, the newest praises we got recently was when a shut in said, um, I'm glad you didn't play the organ this week and instead played the piano because I could hear the voices on the live stream. Mm. Uh And like that, that is such a warming sentiment to hear because that's the heart behind much of the change and things that happened was to bring the people of God, (coughs) excuse me, into the throne room of God in such a way that they are the choir. 
And God is the audience. Amen. And the objects and, you know, and the center. He's all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then there's that, that scripture I think we all know from childhood for those who were in the church. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Strength. Right. So if we come to worship with um, uh, our own need to consume something to make us feel a certain way, uh, obviously then you're coming to worship with your own own desires as being primary. Um, I happen to be believe that when God is the the central focus of our worship, our, our prayers obviously, our singing, um, our meditating, our bringing ourselves to God, um, our needs are met through Him as He's worshipped. And so the joy of the Lord is my strength and so my my desire is to bring joy to my heavenly father as his son adopted son i want to bring joy to my heavenly father and when i look to christ i i see my example and how to bring joy to the father and as a worship leader um want to point people to christ so that we could together bring joy to our heavenly father in that living room so to speak that sometimes it gets a formal name called a sanctuary hmm. and we as a family uh, sing together and um, bring our heavenly father joy so yeah congregational singing has become more of a bias uh, to me than it ever has been and this is this is coming from someone who has sung in church choirs almost my whole life and uh, I sing in community choirs I there are benefits to groups that sing together and there are benefits of of hearing such groups sing in worship uh but at baker's house it's not an every week thing that you hear a group or a person uh sing to a congregation sing to the lord in the presence of a congregation um so it's not a rule that must be there every week yeah, yeah. So speaking of that, though, what, what are some of the things that we would say Scripture does command of us in our worship? If we're talking about biblical worship and that there might be some things that are commanded, I think we've, we've referenced Colossians 3.16 as, mm -hmm. as a model for some of that. What are some other things that we would say when we look at Scripture, we see clear, reasoned defense for this should be a part of? how we worship right and so um for the sake of of those of you who are listening and uh may not have dwelt or abided in colossians three sixteen, let me just share that with you let the word of christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another through you hear this admonishing one another through psalms hymns and spiritual songs so our singing has a as a catechetical, it form, it's a teaching, it's a, it's a formative way to be, to receive that means of grace through God's word. Mm. And so, um, our, our, our singing is, is important, uh, that we, we sing and learn and re sing this to God. Hey, father, this is, this is what you taught us. And we're singing these words that you wrote in scripture back to you. And, uh, yeah, that's probably the most flattering thing. A congregation can do so um 
so yes uh scripture songs um songs are are formative are formative and commanded in scripture that colossians three sixteen is a command yes yeah so don't let anyone tell you that the church shouldn't be a singing body um yeah we're yeah. we're very unique in that regard but it is a command that we're we're told to do this what else what else do you think um comes from i know we reference isaiah um six a lot in our worship as what worship mm-hmm. can look like uh, what mm-hmm. are some other what are some other places or ideas or practices that we see backed up by scripture well if we start at the beginning of how we start worship it's uh coming to his courts with praise mm-hmm. you know right out of the psalms so we we begin our worship with reading a, 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 a scripture together and uh and we we sing and mm-hmm. give praise to the lord and quite often that's in the, the call to worship as well mm-hmm. so yeah these things start to have more meaning when they're attached we don't just have a, a verse at the beginning right in a praise because we like it we do that because we feel it helps people best come into the courts of god praising him right so you can start to see how these weave together to build a liturgy of some sort one thing yeah, that's so helpful we, for me to start yeah. seeing was the what what do reform people call it? the dialogical nature of planning a worship yeah. service where mm-hmm. it's always god who calls us he speaks first we respond mm-hmm. and vice versa throughout the whole service and god gets the last word and the benediction and sending us out mm. yes yes uh, very good there matthew <laughs> yeah Even so well. yeah, yeah and, and it, these are important things that oftentimes you don't we don't really think about we often hear the worship wars between contemporary or traditional. We hear the 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 ideas behind seeker sensitive worship or uh, li- high liturgy worship. Usually these these are the battles we think about. So usually we're not even getting to the place of talking about what does scripture say. And I think that that's an important place. And for you listening, if if you're a pastor or if you're a church member, or if you're a non-believer, wherever you stand, hopefully if you're a non-believer, know that, that Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sins and that you can have freedom in him alone today. But if you are a church member or a pastor or an elder, please consider what it would look like for you to, to sit down with your liturgy and your, your worship of the day and to think about what from scripture are we doing that's commanded. This is why we celebrate the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper in worship because we're commanded to do them together, not solo. Uh, It's not solo communion. It's not solo baptism. These are things commanded for the church to do. This is why we have meals together as a church. Sometimes we, we, the way we recently did Ash Wednesday, where we don't, we call it Ash Wednesday, but we don't use ashes. Um, We, we do a meal and, and point to the death of Christ through communion. So I think that there's also ways, great freedom in how scripture has outlined worship that you can have worship sitting around a table in your living room or in your dining room as a family, just in the same way you can have worship sitting in a sanctuary or a building together as the body of Christ. And I think that that's what my heart is as a a dad 
with young kids, why I think the gospel central is so important is because my kids are hearing the gospel each and every day that they show up just by the pattern of worship that we have. And so we all know, I mean, you there's radio jingles that you know. You could sing the ABCs right now. You could probably sing the books of the Bible, things that you've learned over time because it's been told to you time and time and time again. And I think as we think about our worship, we want that to be gospel-centered and biblical, both of those things, so that as children and people are in worship, it's a vaccination of sorts against bad theology and bad doctrine that would sway them to being the object of their own worship and their own praise and selfish idolatry or to sway them into a preferential only. It's only about what I want and what I like as opposed to about what God desires. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, yeah. Well, in terms of, you know, in terms of what God desires, I think that points back to what you identified, Matt, in terms of worship being dialogical. It's a conversation um, between a holy God and his children. And um, and that's the nature of our our pattern of worship at Bakerstown. If you were to come to our church or, you know, worship service on Sunday morning and look at our worship guide, you might not see anything. Yeah, you've seen stuff like it before, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a tool that we use as leaders to teach this conversation with God. And um, uh, so can, can I just speak about worship planning a little bit? So actually, yeah, my question, and we're going to hop into the the Q&A portion because some of the questions I had put together lead us down that direction. So before before we do that, I'm going to do one one plug because that's what we're doing. So if you're here watching and you've been a part of this, I I thank you for being here. I'd want to ask you to consider a few things. One, consider sharing this video or if you're listening on any of the podcast platforms, please consider leaving a rating. And, and telling us how we're doing, good, bad, all feedback is helpful. And if you're looking to partner with me here on the channel at Pastor Talk Radio or on my YouTube channel, you can head over and follow to the Patreon, become a member for as low as $3 a month that gets you into our Discord chat, where there's lots of good conversation happening around things like this. And I appreciate you. Thank you. We're going to hop into now some Q&A, and I'm going to start us off with a question. That's for both of you in different spheres. And any of you guys watching, feel free to put your questions down in the chat. So here's my opening question, both for Matt and Paul. What does liturgy preparation look like, Paul, in terms of calls to worship, uh, prayers of confession, scripture of the day? You've referenced some of that. And on that same side, Matt, what does, in, in, in terms of trying to come alongside a pastor, and help and guide and choose music, how does that preparation look like for you as you're going through that? So kind of, we're going to get the full spectrum here of a worship service, kind of as a worship minister and a, and a teaching elder, a senior pastor, how you guys would come about that. Whoever wants to tackle first can go ahead. Sounds like, Paul, you were ready to run on some of it, so we'll let you take the first stab at it. Yeah, so in some ways, this might be a a touch of a rewind on something I said earlier in this conversation. But when I'm working on a text for preaching, uh, there are attributes of God that uh, 
that become evident. There are um, identification of sin that we might be participating in. Uh, there may be attributes of Christ that we can imitate and uh, abide in him and let his life be lived through us uh, in reliance of the scriptures and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's our sanctification. Um, and, and in some ways, you know, worship planning um, is, is kind of like a sanctifying discipline. It takes you into God's word and you bring your people that you're serving with you to God's word. Mm. And so um, I'm, I'm thinking of the people in the pews long before Sunday comes and they're filled. Mm. So, uh, and as I mentioned, uh, the insights from the work on the sermon lead me into paths of uh, seeking scripture for the call to worship, which often is um, like a leader and a response. Call and response, yeah. Response, responsive call to worship. and Or there are times where it's just a plain unison reading of a psalm, like this past week, Psalm 23. Mm -hmm. um, and then the call to repentance that is issued before the call of the, the prayer of confession, that's just going to the scriptures looking at the treasure of of god's love for us to say hey turn back to me i love you turn back to me and you know if you don't do the planning in advance you could end up saying the same call to confession every week or maybe have three in your pocket and shoot from the hip but when you plan in advance and and go to God's word and with this expectation that you're going to hear things that you'd long forgotten um, and bring that fresh word to people. Um, that, that's and, so good. That's so good. And, I, I think and, it's so easy to just shoot from the hip. What we've always said again and again. Yes. And it's the same. Same goes with as a uh, assurance of a partner, assurance of grace. Mm. We call it. There's a, there are a lot of assurancing assurances in the, scriptures all of scripture old and new testaments and so it's kind of like <laughs> worship planning is going to uh, a treasure box and and finding finding that word of the lord mm. that uh, is so integral to to what he's already saying to you through your sermon prep and that's that's what you get to bring to the table uh when god's people come to worship in in that setting and uh you know songs you know I'm, I'm in a position at the moment to choose songs but uh i appreciate when someone has that capacity to know you know you have a pattern for worship and there are certain songs that fit in certain places in worship and then there are scriptural clues and so um you know a musician who who is aware of the music particularly the lyric the the depth of the lyric mm -hmm. um, can can find music that is very supportive of, in the flow of of an emerging worship service uh, in its planning. Mm. That's that's so helpful. I think I think some of the the wisdom that you've shared there, one is is nice to hear. It's insightful. It also reminds us that there's something 
beautiful and God honoring about the preparation, the planning that goes before and, and not just to, to stick with it. That's awesome. Matt, Matt, how would you go about similarly? What, what is a process? What is your process of choosing music and, and getting into uh, kind of a place where it's both teaching, it's dialoguing, it's setting up the sermon, it's calling people to confession. I mean, music can bring every emotion, right? So mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you go about choosing music to support the liturgy of that day? Yeah, if you're a church musician watching this, something I remember, Paul, you said this multiple times to me when I would get totally in the weeds thinking like, oh, it's this scripture passage. If we can pull this theme out of this song and you would just say, as long as we're singing good songs, good hymns that are solid theologically, that have lyrical depth, it'll fit in the service. So it's easy to, yes, we want to thoughtfully plan the service, but also as a church musician, if you are charged with figuring out the repertoire of songs that your church is going to be singing and memorizing and singing for the rest of their lives, whether they realize that or not, pick good songs. Just start a running list, whether it's a good hymnal. I think it's always good to start with a hymnal, but there's so much good stuff being written today from the Gettys and Sandra McCracken and City of Light and all of those Mm -hmm. sort of formed worship groups. Um, Just pick good music that will fit no matter what and won't feel tone deaf if you confess Mm. from the Psalms and there's just this heart-wrenching confession of sin and then you're singing this upbeat thing one minute later that doesn't have any depth. And not that upbeat necessarily can't follow something that is um, a lament, but it has to have lyrical depth that'll stand up to being next to that thing in a worship service. And just from a practical standpoint, too, you mentioned having a few different things in your pocket, Paul, that are go-tos. Have you guys seen these pocket resource books of benedictions? Yeah, I saw them on Amazon. Man, we pull from these a ton at Covenant. I'm not the chief liturgist here. Tim Nicholson, our music director, is the primary liturgy writer. But he has been, it's been helpful to see his process. Um, He pulls a lot from these. We use the Book of Common Prayer um, from the ACNA quite a bit as well. Um, and something that Tim and his wife Sandra quote a bunch is this article from Nicholas Wolterstorff that talks about three things that should be present in your liturgies every week. And that's the trumpets of joy, the ashes of repentance, and the tears of lament. If you can represent those three things, trumpets, ashes, and tears in every single one of your worship services, then no matter what state of mind your people are coming to the pews in, they are going to be ministered to, whether they're in a season of depression, if they're in a season of joy, if they're in a season of sin, then those three things, those categories can bring anybody into the fold and it won't feel like a tone deaf thing because it feels so inauthentic to show up to a worship service in one of those three states and you just get a bunch of happy clappy songs or as i'm guilty of choosing downtrodden depressed sounding confessional type scripture songs we need to have all three things represented within our worship services Mm -hmm. that's good matt can you read the title of those for those that might be listening and not um 
or or that might have missed it, I'll try to link some of this down below as well. So it's a, a series that I think Covenant Seminary through the PCA put these out. There's Benedictions, a pocket resource. That one's by Robert I. Vicholes. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Forgive me if I've mistaken that. There's one called Confessions of Sin and Assurances of Pardon by Bobby G. Griffith Jr. And then same author as before, Robert Vicholes has Calls to Worship, a pocket resource. So they're all Fantastic. under the pocket resource title. Awesome. Pocket resource. Check that out. That's really helpful. So we do have a question here in the chat from Kay Barrick, an interesting one. Well, that's all over my face, but that's fine. Um, here it is. It says, where am I going to put it? We'll put it right there. That works. Why does it take catastrophic events, destruction or severe loss for the body to even contemplate unity versus being proactive and getting all the egos and pride out of the way pre destruction. So Barrett, hey, Barrett, if you're still here, I, I really appreciate that comment. Would love yeah. Maybe a little more context to what you're intending, but we'll we'll go off of what's here. But if you're still here, feel free to leave a little more context of what you're specifically thinking about. But uh, I think we can see where it's going. Why does it sometimes take catastrophic events for us to contemplate coming together in unity versus being proactive about it? I'll take a I'll, I'll start. Yeah, go for it. Um, well, first of all, I think, um, the premise of the question, uh, about events that draw us together, uh, I'll, I'll say that that's, that's part of God's, that's a means of grace that God draws us to himself when there is a, a catastrophe. And I don't think, uh, there's any denigration of that in the question, but it is does speak truthfully though to why does why that has to happen though for us to be unified and i think our unity before disaster is going to be found in um, a, a real heartfelt heartbroken understanding of the doctrine of sin hmm. when when we are unified in our and our understanding of our condition before God without Christ, um, that is unifying that we are all sinners in need of grace. And, um, and that's what brings us before our Heavenly Father together as one. Hmm. And that should happen every single Sabbath day. Um, and so if I'm not convinced of my own sinfulness, I think I'm self you know, I'm, I'm on average, I'm good. And if God grades on an average curve, I'm good with him. I'm good with heaven. I got my life insurance. I got my fire insurance. And um, so maybe I won't be there this week. Um, I might show up like a month from now and I'll still be good with God and basically absent from worship of, mm -hmm. from God's people. So doctrine of sin has to be nailed down really, really hard. Um, not in a condemning way, but as to say, this is what your true need is. Yeah. And, and I would even go the, the step past that to also say that uh, a, a clear understanding of the gospel is needed. I think you can have mm -hmm. great disagreement among believers and still have unity when a doctrine of the gospel is clearly understood and believed. And I'll give an example yes. of this from my own life. 
Um, last night, I went to the movies. I went to go see Come Out in Jesus' Name, a movie presenting the doctrine of deliverance, I of which I don't agree. And I, I, I watched the whole movie, and if you want to see my recap, I did a live stream last night about that. You can follow on the channel. But after having conversations with folks, which was my goal, I want to go talk to people that believe differently than me. I, they, they would ask what I believed, and I said, well, I believe that if we can agree that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then other things can be secondary issues that we disagree on as long as it doesn't compromise that core gospel understanding. So I think if our unity becomes in the gospel, we can have unity. If we have different understandings of the gospel, like we see in Galatians, like yes. we see in other, other in Corinthians and in, in other places, I don't think unity is even possible when there's different understandings of the gospel. And in fact, I would say, for those who have a different faith, a different religion, or a different gospel than what is revealed in Scripture, unity, I don't even believe, is possible. Right, and uh, I'm glad you followed that with what I just said previously, and that is um, the, the good news, the gospel. And that's why I started with the doctrine of sin and being that a, a you have to be unified in understanding of who you are before God. And then that's the setup for for the save, you know, the gospel. And that's the truly unifying, joyful, gratifying, grateful, filling, you know, gratitude filling, joyful place where believers are gathered and can be unified in in ministry to the world. In the yeah. world. While having yeah. disagreements politically, while having disagreements in other ways, mm -hmm. we can find unity there. Mm -hmm. Any any thoughts on that, Matt? Yeah, taking the question maybe from a stylistic preferential thing, like it's easy to let our egos get in the way thinking, mm -hmm. I like worship to look like this specific thing. Speaking from experience, I think that we it's healthy and good for us to always have our preferences challenged. And I have found myself in contexts and different understandings of scriptural worship to the point where I have lo loved and hated every worship context that I've been in. Like I can find things that I don't like stylistically about a band or an organ or acapella psalm singing or any of these things. So I think that it's good for us to preemptively, like if there is catastrophe in our church, if there's a major loss, then we find unity in singing time-tested hymns like It Is Well or Amazing Grace, things that give us assurance of life after death, of our assurance of our salvation. We should be preemptively singing songs like that mm -hmm. all the time. And that's not to say we can't sing new things too, but I, I, I might be taking this question in the totally wrong way, but I was viewing it more stylistically, like how can sure. we preemptively align ourselves? And my answer to that is always have your own preferences challenged. There should be songs and hymns on Sunday morning. There should be confessions that challenge us. There should be prayers that challenge us, that make us think about what we believe, why we believe it. And we might not like it in the moment, but hopefully it's like eating our vegetables and it'll be good for us long term. <laughs> Yeah, well, and, and I think 
one of the things I want to encourage people is preferences change when you understand and know the heart of something. It's very hard. It's very easy, I think, to be negative about something when it's a far off distant thing. But if we're willing to engage and we're willing to listen to the people that might love that thing, whether it be worship music or something else, um, I think you your heart becomes softer and your preferences might even change. But we always want to tether our preferences to scripture. That's the caveat of, of, of course, we'd all agree on. So we've, we have been at this for a little over an hour. I appreciate you guys spending time with me. Uh, Paul, uh, where can people find you? If, if people are like, wow, I really enjoyed his perspective on worship. Where can people find you on a Sunday morning? Where, where are you hanging out at? Uh, are you talking digitally or what? I'm an old guy. No, no. Like, I can like give in you person. Like in person. If you're... Heckert Road, Bakerstown, PA, 15007. <laughs> at the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown, if you are in the North Pittsburgh or in the Pittsburgh area, we'd love for you to come join us in worship. Uh, we'd love to meet you. 10 a.m. And if you want to join, join digitally, you can join the live stream. Uh, which is on the, the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown YouTube channel. Oh, one last question, Daryl. I'm going to get it in here because Daryl's my boy. I'll be live streaming with him later tonight. How far ahead do you plan your services? Great question, and then I'll let Matt plug where Matt and what three, Matt's doing. Three days, and then you rise. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Daryl, thanks for the question. Oh, so... Usually by Wednesday, I, I, I have a, a, a direction and different components uh, are on my piece of paper. Uh, music is the most difficult thing for me to choose. Uh, and that usually gets done by uh, Thursday, Thursday, after, Thursday at noon. So uh, prayer of confession is always the last thing I write. So Thursday is usually the drop dead date of the week. Yeah. Well, and we've got our sermon series laid out. We're walking through the book of Matthew verse by verse. And we've been doing that for over a year now. Um, but yeah, in terms of the, the liturgy, that's helpful to hear. And, and why is that? I think you've already said that's partly because a lot of it's flowing out of your sermon preparation. So if you were to go four or five weeks ahead, it might all change anyway yeah. by the time you're in sermon preparation. So. And I think the other thing that uh, is unique to us is that, um, like, if I had a choir that was singing, you know, rehearsing on Thursday, and I had a choir director, I'd want to have, you know, certain things much earlier sure. than what we, we well, than what we currently do. We have a talented keyboardist and singer and drummer and bass player, and so... Um, and they do their rehearsing Sunday morning. So good, good, good. And uh, Barrick did come back in here and give us a little bit of context. And I awesome. think our conversation hit both. He said, thank you for it. He said, unity between congregations and the greater good, multiple churches coming together for events and outreach, mm. large scale public gatherings and events. So a little bit of what Paul and I talked on, I think finding unity in our understanding of sin in the gospel and then Matt gave a second thought to that as unity in your own congregation, which I think is helpful as well. So thanks for that. So Matt, 
what what are you up to uh do you have any new projects coming out music that you want to plug what, what do you got going on sure two things i'll plug myself matthewdavidmontgomery.com for music stuff um I've, since time at Bakerstown, when we started singing some psalm stuff there, worked with the publishing house of the RPCNA, which puts out a wonderful Psalter, um, which looks like a hymnal, but it has all 150 psalms in it. So been setting those to music and then just some instrumental hymn tunes for easy listening. The second thing I want to plug is here at Covenant Prez, we host this conference. We're coming up on our third year of doing it in October called the Liturgy Collective. So very fitting for today's conversation. If this stuff is your wheelhouse and you want to learn more and just geek out with some other people that are in the thick of it, um, check out liturgycollective.com. We're meeting this year, October 12th through 14th here in Nashville, Tennessee, in beautiful Green Hills area. Um, so we have a few speakers in the works that I wish that I could announce to you guys right now, but we're still working out some details, but it'll be a good lineup of speakers for sure. So fantastic. Sounds awesome. Yeah. I'll, I'll try to put all that in the show notes if you're listening and in the description down below so you can find that. I appreciate you both spending time. We've gone over the time we wanted, but the conversation was fruitful and a blessing to me. I hope it was a blessing to those that you were listening. Please do remember Hit that like button if you haven't already and leave a review if you're listening on any of the podcast apps. Next week, I'll be sitting down with Sean Brubaker. He's a pastor in the EPC, and he and I also attended seminary together. We commuted to seminary, so there'll be some fun stories of us to share looking back on our time. So I hope and pray you've been blessed. Remember, faithfulness is pursued together. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye. This is Pastor Talk Radio. People think that there's another gospel. They think they can improve upon the gospel. They think they can edit the gospel. They think that they can change the gospel and move to another gospel, but there is no other gospel.